Back in 1998, I had a wedding for a young man in our church, and he was actually marrying the younger sister of a girl that I had gone to high school with. We were actually in the same classes throughout grades 11 and 12, all five classes, each day, each year. And then uh, she married a guy that is a part of one of our sister churches in Charlottetown. And then uh, he played hockey with me for the University of Prince Edward Island one year. So I was, and then he introduced his sister-in-law to his cousin here in Halifax. So that's how I ended up with this wedding. And I was excited to see this young woman again uh, because I hadn't seen her since high school. And I go up, I reintroduce myself, this blank look. She doesn't have a clue who I am. So I start reminding her, well, we were in all the classes together in grades 11 and 12, still this blank look. And I said, we, we even went on the French trip. Our grade 12 French class went to Quebec City for a week. You even sat by me on the train. So I, I, by this point, I started pulling out my yearbook, or going to my yearbook. And, and you'll notice the years on here, 1977, when I graduated. Everybody up here saw me place that on the stand this morning, they said, we weren't even born then, and you were already through high school. So I showed her in my yearbook, there were pictures of that trip, and there we were sitting beside one another. And then I said, I played hockey with your husband. Still no recognition. And I showed her the comments that she had made in my yearbook. But then the guys managed to come up with a, a later in life. But it's tough on our ego when we don't get recognized, isn't it? And you're wondering, who has stuff like that at their fingertips? Well, your pastor does. Any weird stuff you need, I can probably find it like that. There's a significant portion of our congregation that doesn't get recognition for something they do very well. And you'll hear more about that later. But do you know how the finances of HCC operate? If you're a guest with us today here for the first time, and maybe you're thinking, oh, they talk about money all the time in church. Well, this is probably the second time this year that we've t touched on the topic. But our church is totally financed by the offerings of the people that attend. There might be three, $4,000 in a non-COVID year that will come from people that rent our basement or maybe park a vehicle in our parking lot, that type of thing. But the rest of it all comes from our church people. And here's something that speaks to the type of people that we have here at HCC. If we continue on the same pattern of giving until the end of this year, we will actually have 8% more than we budgeted for. And a part of that is almost $50,000 that is going toward missions, around $10,000 going to help local families in need. And we've been able to resettle an Iranian family here in Halifax. And the list just goes on and on of the things that have been happening with our money or your money. 
But in order to come up with that funding, we don't look at anyone's tax returns and someone doesn't say, okay, you're going to give 10% amount of that money or maybe one of the churches in the neighborhood would like to have you as a part of their group. We don't do that. We just teach what the Bible says about giving and the people of the church respond voluntarily in obedience and in love. And the truth is that only our financial people know what is going on in that way. It's not my business to be a part of that, so I have never looked at the books to see what each individual person gives. And I know in some churches that happens all the time, but I've never done that. I don't know the circumstances in people's lives. I can't go making judgments on what individuals give. But the downside of people not knowing is that there are a lot of people who give generously that don't get any thanks. Musicians, teachers, they, they get thanks sometimes. It's not enough, probably. I brought our ministry leaders together for a breakfast just to say thank you for what you're doing in leading your ministry. But for those who give regularly and sacrificially, they're the unsung heroes of the church because little honor is given to them. And Jesus said this, he said, those people who give in order to get praise have already received their reward. When you give, do it in secret, even if your left hand should not know what your right hand is doing. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So even though there's no pressure, even though there's no recognition, when you become a member of this church, you should want to richly share what God has blessed you with. 2 Corinthians 8-7 is what we're looking at. You are rich in everything, in faith, in speaking, in knowledge, in truly wanting to help, and in the love you learn from us. In the same way, be strong also in the grace of giving. So today we're finishing up a short series entitled Money Matters. And last week we talked about enjoying God's riches, enjoying what God has blessed us with. And today we're going to talk about sharing God's riches. And our goal for all of you is that you would excel in that gift of generosity. So here are some reasons why each member should be enthusiastic about sharing the riches that God has blessed them with. First of all, it's simply to obey God's command. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And in 1 Corinthians 16, he said, on the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. So he was telling them, First day of each week, each Sunday, you give a portion of your income. Hold on to it. When I come around, I will gather that. So that passage teaches that we should give regularly and proportionately. And giving shouldn't be an occasional response to an emergency appeal, but it's an act of worship each week. Now, during the seven and a half months that we weren't able to have in-person services because of COVID, we had a number of people who were actually doing that. They were setting aside the actual cash. Maybe I shouldn't mention this. You might figure out who they are and think they've got money sitting in their house. But they, uh, and they, they held on to that money and then came and gave it when we were able to be in worship together again. The new... International Version says we're to set aside an amount 
in keeping with their income. So how do you determine what amount is proportionate? How much does God consider generous? Let's say this Friday night is a special occasion and you're going to take eight of your family members out for dinner with you and you're going to go to your favorite restaurant and there's a guy there that is just incredible as a waiter. You've asked for him and you are going to have him waiting on your table. You know that the, the menu says a gratuity of 15% will be automatically added to the bills for parties of eight or more. So you are there, the evening is wonderful, the waiter gives you the bill, and there's no gratuity mentioned on there. And you realize that he is actually trusting you to make that decision. He knows that you have a relationship, and maybe he's even expecting that you might give more than the 15%. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Jewish people were commanded in Leviticus 27, 10% of everything you harvest is holy and belongs to me, whether it grows in your fields or on your fruit trees. So all throughout the Old Testament, the people are told that they were to be assessed a 10% tithe on everything. So whether it was property that they had or maybe they were growing crops they would give 10 percent of that to the lord now that was under the covenant of law now we're under the covenant of grace but we've been given so much more just listen to these things that we've been given we've been given forgiveness and eternal life in jesus christ we've been given the indwelling gift of the holy spirit We've been given guidance from God's word. And we've been given the community of the church. So when we ask how much should we give, God, because of our relationship with us, says you give just as you have been prospered. So I would challenge you, if you're not giving a tithe of your income to try and work up toward that, if you make minimum wage of 27000 a year, then it's You're not going to be able to do that. But as your income grows, it's going to be easier to be able to do that. And teach your children to give regularly as well. Because it's so much easier for them to grow up being generous than it is to try and jump into this later in life. And the concern isn't the amount of God's riches we choose to share, but it's giving regularly. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Giving grows out of the heart. Otherwise, you've reluctantly grumbled yes because you felt you had to or because you couldn't say no. But this isn't the way God wants it. For we know that God loves a cheerful giver. So there's another thing we can draw from this. God wants us to give cheerfully. Now that's understandable because we don't want anyone throwing a gift at us and sneering. I knew it was your birthday. I knew you'd want something. I knew you'd want something expensive. and I couldn't really afford it, but I went out and bought it anyway. And here it is. You don't want a gift like that. Rather, they didn't give you anything when a gift is given with that attitude. And God doesn't want you to share your riches because you feel obligated or because you have to. He wants you to share those riches he has blessed you with because this will be a blessing to him. It's, and it's out of appreciation for him and his church. Occasionally someone will say to me, 
I would like to give 10% of our income, but my husband or wife doesn't want to. And my response is, well, you go ahead and give that 10% anyway. God deserves it. No, we don't do that. We, but I say, just talk to one another and come to an amount that you can agree upon. We don't want this to be a bone of contention in your relationship. God takes note of the attitude as much as he takes note of the amount. And there's another scripture we need to consider in Acts chapter 4. There were no needy people among them. From time to time, those who owned fields or houses sold them, brought the money, and gave it to the apostles. Then the money was given to anyone who needed it. Now, I'm so proud of the way that our congregation responds to needs as they arise. And I don't know if anyone has sold a portion of land or anything like that, but good-sized chunks of money have come in when there is a need. And in obedience to God's command, we also see the New Testament Christians giving submissively. They didn't give directly to the ones that were in need. They would actually give to the leadership of the church and then trust the leadership of the church to disperse that money as necessary. So this isn't a direct command, but it's a New Testament precedent to entrust the leaders of the church with the distribution of funds. Now, some Christians like to distribute their 10% in their own way, the way they want to. They'll give a little bit to the church, and then maybe they will sponsor a World Vision child. Maybe they will give to a missionary that the church doesn't sponsor. Then maybe they'll send some kids to church camp, which is amazing as well. But the Old Testament talks about bringing the whole tithe into God's storehouse. And that is the first 10% of their crops. And the New Testament talks about bringing it into the temple and laying it at the apostles' feet. So it's an act of submission to respect the combined wisdom of God's delegated leaders. It takes the ego out of it. It takes any vulnerability to being emotional or making incorrect decisions out of it. Yes, we ought to support missionaries that our church may not have on our support list. Yes, we ought to give to World Vision children. I'm on my third child now. They keep hitting the age of 18, and they take them away from me, and, and I've given another four- or five-year-old. But it's amazing to be able to do that. And it's important to also sponsor kids going to church camp. But those offerings are ones that we give above what we give to the church. And we give because God commands us to give. The second reason that we are to share God's riches generously is because generosity helps us avoid greed. So I'm looking at Luke chapter 12 right now. Then Jesus said to them, Be careful and guard against all kinds of greed. Life is not measured by how much one owns. It's so easy to get caught up in the mindset of the world and that our worth is based upon how much we have as far as money goes or homes or property. And before we know it, we think that our self-worth is attached to the house we live in, the clothes we wear, the vacations that we take, the assets that we own, the toys that we play with. But when we share God's graces richly and generously, it 
is a tangible reminder that our life isn't measured by things. We're reminded that pleasures don't bring permanent happiness, that possessions can be wiped out in one hurricane. As Job said, I was naked with nothing when I came from my mother's womb, and naked with nothing I will return to the earth. Accidents, they can happen so quickly, and life upon this earth can end so abruptly. So we're reminded that what matters aren't the things you own, but the relationship that you have with God and the relationships that you have with others. Jesus said to the rich young ruler who was clinging to his possessions, he said, tonight you are going to die. Where then will be those things that you have hoarded up? So each week when you share God's riches generously, you're reminding yourself and your family, our meaning isn't in these things that will one day be returned, but our meaning and purpose in life is in something more important. We give to avoid greed and concentrate on eternal things and not earthly things. That's why whenever I bought a vehicle for my daughters, it was never a late model vehicle. It was always an older one. We started off, we had four drivers in the house and one vehicle, and it was just overburdening to me driving them everywhere to work and pick them up again. And, and so I went to my buddy that I played hockey with, and he had a used car lot. And he said, Greg, I'll sell you a good car. It's one that I would trust putting my own daughter in. So it was a 13-year-old Toyota Camry. And it was okay for a while, but eventually I was called upon. Dad, a mechanic tells me the starter's gone. I'm here in Charlottetown at university. Dad, I'm here in Sydney, and the radiator is blowing water all over the place. What do I do? And then I had to run to Andy Ganesh for a rescue. And then eventually that car just didn't pass inspection, and I got a 10-year-old Honda Civic. And that actually hung in there for seven years. But still, there was a call to go to Truro one time. Dad, there's something wrong with the car. But we didn't go for the new vehicles because we didn't want to waste God's resources in those situations. The third reason we share God's riches generously is to advance the kingdom of God. Now, there are certain core beliefs that we will never waver on here at Halifax Christian Church. We believe that God is our creator, that we're not here by accident, but by intelligent design. We believe that every person is a sinner, and that alienates us from God and leaves us without hope in the world. We believe that Jesus Christ came to earth as God in the flesh to die an atoning death, to pay the price for our sins and to reconcile us or to bring us back to God. And then we believe that he arose from the dead to prove that he is God. We believe that God grants forgiveness and the promise of eternal life to all who turn to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we respond to him by repenting of sin and confessing our faith and being baptized into him. We believe that God has communicated these spiritual truths through the Bible, a lamp for our steps and a light on the path before us. And we believe that the church exists as the body of Christ on earth, and it exists to evangelize the lost, to edify or build up 
the ones who are already saved, to minister to those who are needy, and to be a conscience in the community. So when you share God's riches regularly and generously, you're actually helping to share those convictions with others. You're seeking to advance the kingdom of God. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 14, And this good news of God's kingdom will be preached throughout the whole community, a testimony to all people and all nations. Then, beloved, the end, the consummation of all things will come. The fourth reason to share God's riches generously would be to express love for Christ and for the church. So you're familiar with this verse in Ephesians 5. A husband should love his wife as much as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. So the Apostle Paul is telling us that Jesus loved the church so much that he actually gave up his life for the church. And if we love the church, we'll sacrifice for it as well. And it's just a natural expression of love. We all love to express our love to our children and grandchildren on birthdays and at Christmas time. My oldest daughter, Brittany's birthday was in July, and she has really become an avid golfer. But she's using my old golf bag, which is ugly, it's big, it's heavy, it was designed to be used in a cart, and she's really fit, and she likes to walk and carry her clubs. So I found a really good bag to buy for her, double shoulder straps, so she could just truck away up any hill on the golf course. It was above what my wife and I usually spend in our birthday budget, but it was worth it because she was getting so much enjoyment out of it. Then my grandson's birthday was in September, and I checked with his mom, Shan, and is there anything that he needs? And she said, well, he's going up to the ball diamond. He's dragging your big bat along with him, so he's struggling to use that. And then the, his other option is this Nerf bat. So I said, I'm on it. And I went out and I found him, not the $300 bat, you wouldn't imagine, $300 for a bat for kids, a 10-year-old. But I, I found a good bat. Once again, it was beyond our birthday budget, but it was worth it because I love him. And a boy needs a good bat. So you give not because you're compelled, but because you love and I love this church. It's a wonderful place. And yes, I know I'm biased on that. But you know something? Over 50 of the people that are part of our church family right now were actually born here. And many of you have been invited by friends. A lot of you found us almost immediately upon immigrating here to Canada. Some of you even were in contact with us back when you were in the Philippines, and we were praying for you as you were traveling on the way to Halifax to make that big move. Others of you have been invited by someone, by a friend or a neighbor. Still others of you may have immigrated here or moved here from some other province, but didn't really connect with us right away. It might have been years before you found us. But we have been blessed with great people and a great spirit. And Paul Harvey pointed out something about marital love. And he, he said marital love usually goes through three stages. First, there's romance, when a couple is so infatuated with each other and the electricity is just flowing. But that type of romance, it always fades a little bit. 
And I have a tough time convincing young couples when I'm doing premarital counseling with them. They say, oh no, this is going to stay the same all the way through. I say, your love will still stay, but it's going to change. No, it won't. But they will learn. And then... And then comes the next stage where the couple discovers that their partner has faults. And this is called the stage of tolerance. And they have to put up with each other. And then a while later, they move to the third stage, which is mature love. And that's when they learn to overlook faults and they sacrifice for each other. And they love in the third degree. That sets in. And they experience deep affection and companionship. But the problem is many people get through that first phase and when they get into the tolerance part, they're looking somewhere else because they want that romance back again. They want that exciting feeling. But what they're doing is actually delaying the ultimate fulfillment. And then Harvey said you can go through the same cycle in your relationship with your church. When you first come to church, maybe you're kind of swept off your feet a little bit. You think this is the greatest place. And then every service is a highlight for you. You can't get enough. You're infatuated. And then after a while, you discover this church isn't perfect. And I could tell you that right away if it's your first time here. We're not perfect. And you discover some faults. Something is overlooked in your life, or maybe the music just doesn't move you like it did when you first came. Maybe you begin to criticize it and then start looking, well, actually, he said flirt with other churches, and you want to discover that old feeling. But he he says just, who plants little, harvests little, and the one who plants plenty, harvests plenty. So we give because God promised to bless those who give. Now, giving to receive certainly isn't our number one motive, and it's not the highest motive, but it is something that is promised in Scripture that God will pour out blessings on us. Sometimes those blessings are in a material or a financial way, but they'll most likely be spiritual blessings. In verse 11, Paul said, You will be made rich in everything, so that your generosity will spill over in every direction. Through us, your generosity is at work, inspiring praise and thanksgiving to God. So God promises to multiply your seed of generosity into a great harvest. You will be made rich in everything, so that your generosity will spill over in every direction. So it's just like filling a bucket with water, and the bucket is full, and you keep that hose running, and it's just spilling over. It's overflowing. That is what will happen with the blessings God has given to us. Now, some of you might have sizable investments here on earth. It might be property, stocks, shares, and that's not wrong. It's not wrong to have possessions as long as we are giving generously. But when we share God's riches and we invest more in heaven than in all the luxury items on earth. Two things happen. You begin to enjoy what you have on earth without feeling guilty about it. And secondly, God multiplies your investment and gives you a greater return than any investment on earth. There's a puzzling verse in scripture that is about money, and it's Luke 16, verse 9. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, 
you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So what does that mean? I heard someone put it this way. He said, one day when you die, you're going to be standing before God, and this is going to be judgment day, and it will be a sobering moment because you're going to be made aware of how far you have fallen below the standard of holiness that Jesus set. So you're standing there, you're trembling before God, and then you'll hear Jesus' voice behind you saying, Father, this person belongs to me. He requested that I be his savior. His sins are forgiven. He belongs to us. Admit him. And then you'll hear another voice. Yes, Father, I never met this man, but the riches of God that he shared actually with his church supported a missionary who came to India, and I learned of the gospel through him. He's my friend. And then someone else will step forward and say, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I was introduced to Christ through participating in the youth program at the church where this man generously shared God's riches to support that ministry. I came to Christ indirectly through the generosity of this believer. He's my friend. And God will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You may enter into your master's happiness because you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You know that giving doesn't buy your way into heaven. Only Jesus could pay that price. And he did that on the cross. And now he invites you to come humbly admitting, I have sinned. I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus died for me. Paul promised in Ephesians 1.7, Christ sacrificed his life's blood to set us free, which means that our sins are now forgiven. Christ did this because God was so kind to us. So Jesus did all of that so you could have the opportunity to be in relationship with him. If you don't yet have that relationship, then you can respond while we stand together to sing a song. You can come meet me here in the front row.